In his Sermon on the Mount, Rabbi Jesus teaches his disciples how to interpret and apply God's law correctly. As disciples, they are citizens of the kingdom of heaven, and therefore they must know the law of the kingdom. Jesus assures them that he did not come to abolish the Hebrew scriptures or to annul God's law, but to confirm that God's law is permanent and still binding upon his people. Having revealed his purpose to complete God's revelation to humanity and elevate the law to its proper place, Jesus now sets out to correct six pharisaical interpretations or misinterpretations of the law, beginning in Matthew 5.22. Since the days of Ezra, the Pharisees had been charged with protecting and promoting God's law. Early on, they established a fence for the Torah, Sayag la Torah, or man-made rules to prohibit people from violating God's law. Over the next 400 years, the Pharisees viewed the law as burdensome, a burdensome yoke, and interpreted the law so that the commands were less demanding and the permissions more permissible. Each of the six misinterpretations is introduced by the formulaic expression, you have heard, it was said, but I say to you. The verb was said, arethe, is never used in the gospel to refer to the Torah. Anytime Jesus refers back to the Hebrew scriptures, he uses the verb written, grapho. It was written, or it stands written. When Jesus uses the verb was said, arethe, he refers to the Pharisees' teachings about the law. Hence, the phrase you have heard refers to the Pharisees' superficial, narrow interpretations of the law. Because he came to return God's original intention to the law, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' twisting of the law with, I say to you. Authoritatively, Jesus reveals that kingdom citizens must obey the letter of the law and the spirit of the law. For example, in Matthew 5, to 26 Jesus correctly interpreted the sixth commandment to prohibit the outward physical act of murder and the inward emotions of hate and anger so often portrayed in demeaning and derogatory words. Jesus' second correction of pharisaical misinterpretation is now found in Matthew 5, 27-30 and regards the interpretation of the seventh commandment. Jesus will explain that while the letter of the law prohibits adultery, the spirit of the law prohibits lust. As such, Jesus sets forth an excursus upon lust, marriage, and kingdom citizens. Let's begin in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27 to 28. As Jesus addresses the issue of lust, marriage, and the kingdom citizens, he begins by restoring the original intent of the seventh commandment. The seventh commandment properly interpreted. Thus, Let's read Matthew 5, 27 to 28. You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Again, the phrase you have heard and were told allude to the teachings and traditions of the Pharisees. While Jesus begins by quoting the seventh commandment, You shall not commit adultery. The pharisaical misinterpretation seems to be missing. As modern expositors, we must remember that the original readers would have been familiar with the misinterpretation. Therefore, it was unnecessary to state it. But in order to determine the pharisaical distortion, 
As expositors, we must define marriage and adultery in biblical terms. Marriage is a covenant. Malachi 2.14 The Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth. She is your companion and your wife by covenant. Marriage covenants, or threshold covenants, were sacred in the ancient Near East. The covenant was officially ratified with the man and woman becoming one flesh in sexual union. Genesis 2, 24-25. A man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. You see, the marriage covenant is an unbreakable covenant between a man and a woman before God. In Ephesians 5.31, Paul reiterated the permanence of marriage by restating God's marriage mandate. He states, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The term joined, proskaleo, means to be glued together and emphasizes the permanence of the marriage union. Dr. Beth Felker Jones, Associate Professor of Theology at Wheaton College, states, Marriage, created by God as a one-flesh union, is meant to be a sign of God's unbreakable covenant with us. This is an important symbol throughout the scriptures. God is compared to a husband and God's people to a wife. When by the grace of God we are able to keep a marriage together, we get to be symbols, imperfect symbols, but still symbols of God's faithfulness to his people. Marriage as supposed, excuse me, marriages are supposed to last because they are symbols of God's lasting love for us. See, my friends, ultimately marriage is a twofold picture of Yahweh's love for Israel and Jesus' love for the church. And as such, marriage, marriage should not be entered into frivolously. Now, while the marriage covenant officially began with the sexual union between the two parties, the betrothal was equally important. The betrothal period was the first stage of marriage in Jewish culture, usually lasting for a year before the wedding night, and more legal than our modern engagements. Couples, then, were considered legally married during the betrothal period. In Genesis 29-21, Jacob tells Laban, Give me my wife, for my time is complete, that I may go in to her. Jacob and Rachel were legally bound as husband and wife, though they had not yet consummated their marriage. By the way, it is worth noting that though betrothed, the rabbis disapproved of cohabitation. We need to understand here that the Jewish betrothal is as permanent and binding as the marriage covenant. Yahweh's future betrothal to Israel underscores the permanent and binding nature of the betrothal period. In Hosea 2.18, he declares, I will betroth you to me forever. According to the Talmud, Kittaboth 4.4, the betrothal was so binding that only a legal divorce could terminate it. Such bills of divorcement were granted in cases of immorality, such as adultery. For example, in Matthew 1.18, Matthew notes that when Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child. According to verse 19, Joseph, knowing he was not the father, planned to send her away secretly. The verb send away, apolio, means to divorce. Believing that Mary had committed adultery, Joseph was going to divorce her. Now, 
we need to understand something about the term adultery. Both the Greek term moikeuo and the Hebrew term naiop refer to adultery as sexual intercourse between a married individual with someone other than their spouse. Now, because the Jews viewed the betrothal as sacred as the marriage covenant, sexual intimacy with someone other than their betrothed was also considered adultery. Furthermore, under the law, God established several punishments for sexual sins, such as adultery and rape. First, the law states that consensual sexual intimacy between married people not married to one another was punishable by death. Deuteronomy 22:22. If a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. A man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Deuteronomy 22:22. The issue here in this text involves a man and a married woman, not his wife, consensually engaging in sexual intimacy. By definition, such an act is adultery. God's law required that both participating individuals be put to death. Now, while some moderns might consider this harsh, consider that the law of the surrounding culture of the day was similar. Law 129 of Hammurabi's Code ruled that if a man's wife should be seized lying with another male, they shall bind them and cast them into the water. Second, the law states that a consensual sexual relationship between a man and a woman betrothed to another man is punishable by death. Deuteronomy 22, 23-24. If there is a girl who is a virgin engaged to a man, i.e. betrothed, and another man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of the city, and you shall stone them to death. The girl because she did not cry out in the city, and the man because he has violated his neighbor's wife. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. Now remember that culturally, betrothal was as sacred as marriage. Hence, willingly engaging in sexual intimacy with a person betrothed to someone else is also considered adultery. Therefore, God's law required that both persons be put to death. Now, how do we as expositors determine here that this relationship was consensual? Note the verb, she did not cry out. The verb means to wail in horror or anguish. If she were an unwilling participant, such as in the case of rape, she would have loudly protested and cried for help. Now, what happens in a case of rape? The law states that a man who rapes a woman is to be put to death. But if in a field the man finds the girl who is engaged and the man forces her and lies with her, then only the man who lies with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the girl. There is no sin in the girl worthy of death. For just as a man rises against his neighbor and murders him, so is this case. When he found her in the field, the engaged girl cried out, but there was no one to save her. According to Deuteronomy 22.25, the man forces himself upon the woman. The idea of the verb forces, hazak, means to overpower and to hold down and conveys the idea of rape. In a case of rape, only the man shall die. The law specifically notes that there is no sin in the girl worthy of death. In other words, there is no excuse for a man to rape a woman. Furthermore, Yahweh declares that rape is the equivalent 
of murder. On this subject, there is nothing more repugnant than statements such as, look at that way that woman is dressed, and women wonder why they get raped. Regardless of how a woman dresses, there is no excuse for a man raping her. Now, that's not to say that a woman should not dress appropriately. But as Christians, we must not excuse the rapists under the guise that they could not help themselves because the woman's lure was too great for them to fight. Stop making the rapist the victim. Rape is the result of uncontrolled evil lust, which Jesus continues to address in Matthew 5, 28-30. Now, the fact that God required death as the punishment for adultery means that God views adultery as the death of a marriage. If God's law requires the death penalty in cases of adultery, then why are churches not putting adulterers and adulteresses to death? Besides adultery, God's law requires the death penalty for idolatry, blasphemy, false teaching, Sabbath-breaking, presumptuous rebellion against authority, stubborn rebellion against parental authority, murder, rape, incest, and homosexuality. Again, should churches be putting to death those who commit these sins? If churches do not execute such evildoers, have we as believers violated God's law? How is God's law to be applied in such cases? To be clear, there are aspects of God's law that govern public welfare, such as judicial decisions, adjuration processes, marital and parental guidelines, and property rights. These laws were intended for the theocratic kingdom, that is, a kingdom ruled by God. However, because of Israel's rejection of God's kingdom, the establishment of that kingdom has been temporarily delayed. In the meanwhile, God has given authority to human governments, not the church, to wield the sword and punish evildoers. The church, as the salt of the earth, is to deter immorality and impurity, not execute the immoral and impure. Another question. Did Jesus violate God's law by not putting the adulterous woman of John 8 to death? No. Jesus did not break God's law. Again, while adultery was punishable by death under God's law in a theocratic kingdom, Jesus and all Jewish people were living under Roman law as vassals of the Roman Empire. As such, while still answerable to God's law, they could not enforce those laws associated with the theocracy. Though Jesus could not enforce the death penalty aspect of God's law, he still upheld the law as a whole. In that context... The adulterous man was not present. The law requires both adulterous individuals to be put to death, as we read back in Deuteronomy 22. As well, there were no witnesses present. The law requires that two or three witnesses must first validate the offense, Deuteronomy 17.6. On the evidence of two witnesses or three witnesses, he who is to die shall be put to death. He shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. So since the kingdom of God is still not established on earth, Jesus has allowed divorce in cases of adultery, as well as a few other issues to replace the death penalty. Jesus will address the issue of divorce in Matthew 5, 31 to 32. Now Gordon Wenham sets forth an excellent tool for applying God's kingdom law while living within a pagan nation. He states, quote, Some injunctions are broad and generally applicable to most societies. 
while others are more specific and directed at the particular social problems of ancient Israel. The principles underlying the Old Testament are valid and authoritative for the Christian, but the particular applications found in the Old Testament may not be. The moral principles are the same today, but insofar as our situation offer, offer, often differs from the Old Testament setting, the application of the principles in our society may well be different too. We must emphasize that while the church cannot enforce the death penalty upon the violators of God's law, violating those laws will still result in a divine death penalty that may prevent one from entering the kingdom of heaven. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-10 Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexual, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. The only provision for redemption from that divine death penalty is the cleansing, sanctifying, and justifying work of Christ in salvation. 1 Corinthians 6.11 Such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Friend, before we go any further, if that verse in 1 Corinthians 6.9-10 describes you, if you're a fornicator, an idolater, an adulterer, an effeminate, homosexual, thief, covet, drunkard, reviler, swindler, you are not going to inherit the kingdom of God. That is, you do not have eternal security. You do not have an eternal life in heaven awaiting you. What you must do is confess your sin and cry out to God in faith. Accept and receive the gospel of the kingdom. And that is... Repent and believe. What do you believe? You believe that Christ died and shed his blood to pay for your sin, to cover your sin. And then he not only died, but he was buried and rose again the third day. If you've never accepted the gospel of the kingdom, if you've never repented and believed, my friend, you are going to hell. Praise God for 1 Corinthians 6.11. Such were some of you. You may be those things, but you don't have to continue to be those things. You can be washed, you can be sanctified and justified if you'll repent and believe the gospel. Now, having defined marriage and adultery in biblical terms, how did the Pharisees distort the prohibition against adultery? As with the prohibition against murder, they narrowly defined adultery. They limited adultery solely to the physical act of cheating on one's spouse. As well, the Pharisees taught that married Jewish women were to wear head coverings, such as a veil or a wig, to prevent a man from lusting after them. In other words, according to the Pharisees, if a man lusted after a woman, the woman was to be blamed. Jesus, however, went beyond the letter of the law and elevated the prohibition against adultery to include lust. He said, everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Just as one can commit murder in their heart, so too they can commit adultery in their heart. And in so doing, Jesus, Jesus places the blame for lust squarely on the men who were lusting. In other words, Jesus was saying, do not blame a woman for your lust, blame yourself. Now let's be clear here. Not all lust is evil. Not all lust is evil. The verb lust, epithumio, 
generally for, refers to a craving or desire for something. The problem with the term lust is that it is so often used in a negative sense that we automatically consider lust as evil. Not all lusts, cravings, or desires are evil. Some are even God-given. You know, when a person is hungry or thirsty, they desire or crave lust, food, and drink. When a person is tired, they lust, crave, desire to rest. God gave those desires so that bodies would not wear out and die. In the context, when Jesus refers to lust, epithumio, he refers explicitly to sexual desires or cravings. Now, again, let's be clear here. Not all sexual desires are evil. Just as there is righteous and unrighteous anger, there is righteous and unrighteous sexual desires. Righteous sexual desire are those directed towards one spouse. Such lust or desires are not only natural, but divinely given. Under the leading of the Holy Spirit, the words of the Song of Solomon were penned, dealing with the natural and divinely given lust or sexual desire between a husband and a wife. Indeed, Paul declared to the Corinthians that lust, that is, desire or sexual intimacy for one's spouse is natural and should not be withheld. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise also the wife to her husband, 1 Corinthians 7.3. However, believer, we need to beware, because righteous lust or cravings can become unrighteous. If a desire or craving for food becomes so great that you become gluttonous, then that is sin. Proverbs 23.20-21, do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of meat, for the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty. And drowsiness will clothe one with rags as well. If the desire or craving for rest leads one to be lazy, then that is a sin. Proverbs 21, 25. The desire of the sluggard puts him to death, for his hands refuse to work. In the context of Matthew 5, lust or sexual desire is unrighteous because it is directed towards someone else's spouse or to someone other than their spouse. Interestingly, the law not only prohibits adultery, but also coveting after another person's spouse. Exodus 20.17, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The verb covet, hamad, means to detrimentally desire or lust for something. Hence, when Jesus corrects the pharisaical distortion of the prohibition against adultery, he uses the tenth commandment to enlarge the prohibition against adultery to include lusting for someone's spouse. Jesus' correction infers that not only did the Pharisees limit adultery to the physical act, but on some level justified lusting for another person's spouse or someone other than their spouse. Again, Jesus states that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. The question is, who is everyone in this statement? Primarily, the passage is addressed to those who are married. Hence, in the immediate context, Jesus is focused on married men. However, the admonition can be expanded to mean that men and women should have pure thoughts for the opposite sex. Jesus' primary focus, though, is squarely upon married men lusting or having impure thoughts towards women. Is his focus such that he allows women to have impure thoughts towards men? No. Jesus is not giving a woman a pass to sin. His focus upon men, though, is for two reasons. 
First, men are primarily sexually aroused by sight more often than women. Hence, Jesus' admonition, everyone who looks at a woman. Second, the Pharisees created a justification for men to treat women as sexual objects. Accordingly, so long as the men did not act on their impure thoughts, they were not guilty of adultery. As such, Jesus' teaching was greatly liberating for the women of his day. Women are not to be looked at or treated as merely a sexual object placed on earth to appease men's sexual appetites. Consider the verb looks at, blepo. It does not refer to a passing glance or an appreciation of beauty, but to the idea of giving thought to something impure. Hence, the prohibition against adultery includes impure thoughts that can lead to the act of adultery. Again, Jesus is not forbidding men and women from looking at each other or feeling attraction towards one another. Nor is he forbidding the natural and divinely given desires that men and women have for one another. Instead, Jesus forbids men and women from imagining or fantasizing about sexual relations with anyone other than their spouse. Marriage is a covenant that can be broken both in deed and thought. And because marriage is a picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church, we as believers must strive to protect the sanctity of that covenant in both deeds and thoughts. Now, whereas Jesus properly interpreted the seventh commandment, he now goes on to practically apply it. Hence, Matthew 5, 29 to 30 presents the seventh commandment practically applied. The seventh commandment practically applied. Verse 29, if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better to, for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Jesus applies the prohibition against lust and adultery with two illustrations, the right eye and the right hand. Now because the people of Jesus' day were mostly right-handed, like today, the right side of the body was the preferred side, i.e. the right hand of fellowship. The left side of the body was viewed as the weaker side. Thus, Jesus' use of ridding oneself of the right eye and right hand was graphic and debilitating. Now, Jesus' choice of these body parts was not accidental. The Hebrew term for adultery, na'ah, consists of four letters. According to the Madras Haggadah on Exodus 20.14, the four letters of na'ah are to remind individuals that the sin of adultery can be committed with the hand, the foot, the eye, or with the heart. Jesus uses the same imagery in Matthew 18, 7 to 10. Woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter your life with one eye, then have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. See that you do not despise one of these little ones. In that context, the hand, foot, and eye are symbolic of those things that offend or cause others to stumble. As such, Jesus admonished us as believers to take radical steps to keep from being stumbling blocks and offending other believers, particularly those who are spiritual babes or children. 
My friends, examine yourself. If that's you, if you are an offense, if you are a stumbling block to another believer, particularly a younger or less mature believer, repent. Get rid of, take radical steps to get rid of whatever is making you to be a stumbling block or an offense to another. You see, in both of these illustrations, Jesus states that radical action must be undertaken to be victorious over lust. If your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out. If your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off. To be clear, he is not promoting mutilation of yourself or of your body. Instead, Jesus uses hyperbole, a common trope in rabbinic teaching, to drive home the terribleness of unrighteous lust or impure thoughts. Now, we're able to determine that these illustrations are hyperboles by the fact that tearing out one's eye or cutting off one's arm will not remove the sin of unrighteous lust. A blind person and a disabled person can still harbor impure thoughts. The source of unrighteous lust or impure thoughts is inward. Thus, the steps must be taken to deal with the inward issue of the heart. Remember, Jesus admonishes us that our righteousness must be both outward and inward. It's not enough to com not to commit adultery. We must also guard our heart, our thoughts, our passions, our desires. As RBG Tasker states, quote, Jesus is expressing in metaphorical language the all-important truth that a limited but morally healthy life is better than a wider life which is totally depraved. Also note that in both illustrations, there are several actions that must be defined. Makes you stumble, tear it out, cut it off, throw it from you. The verb make stumble, scandalizo, from which the English term scandal is derived, means to cause someone to sin. Indeed, is there anything more scandalous than to cause someone to sin? The second and third actions, tear it out and cut it out, are parallel actions. The verb tear, exerio, means to extract or remove by force. The verb cut, ecopto, is to break off, as in breaking a branch off of a tree. Both verbs are imperative, denoting that we must undertake radical actions to deal with whatever causes us to sin. And because sin is a matter of the heart, we must do whatever it takes to correct the sinful attitudes of our hearts. The fourth action is throw it from you. The verb throw, ballow, when joined to the preposition from, means to cast away or get rid of something. Jesus' point is that we must make radical choices to rid ourselves of the object or person that is causing us to sin. And Jesus promises that if we do not take drastic action against lust, we will go into hell. And the term hell there is that Greek term Guiana from which we derive the lake of fire. The promise of eternal damnation is not without escape. Where there is repentance of sin, including the sin of unrighteous lusts or immoral thoughts, forgiveness can be granted. My friends, listen. You need to understand that even genuine believers struggle with unrighteous lust. But what sets us apart from those who are believers in name only is that we mourn over our sin. As Jesus previously said in Matthew 4, 4, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Make no mistake, if you're struggling with lust, 
Jesus says you've committed adultery already in your heart. If that's the case, confess it, repent it, forsake it, and allow God to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. James explained the danger of unrighteous lust. James 1, 14-15 states, But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Then when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Friends, since lust is always conceived in the mind, we must bring every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. 2 Corinthians 10.5 As well, we must think upon whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good report. Philippians 4.8 Friends, when your mind is filled with righteous things, there will be no room to think or meditate upon unrighteous or improper things such as sexual desires for someone else's spouse. When unrighteous lust is left unchecked, it conceives and then gives birth to sin. Once sin is birthed, it grows and develops unless it's terminated. Sin can only be terminated by repentance. Only we have the capacity to stop the progress of sin. 1 John 1, 9, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank God for mercy. Thank God for grace. Finally, James says, when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. Accomplished, apoteleo, means to bring something to its completion or end. Regardless of a particular sin, each one of us rem must remember that any sin left unchecked will eventually bring forth divine discipline, resulting in death. While one act of sin may not result in death, a habitual practice of sin will. When we sin, the area in which we sin becomes an area of weakness for the next temptation. Therefore, sin must be terminated before it has a chance to grow into a habit. Now, when James speaks of death as a result of sin, he refers to physical death. See, everyone's going to die, but some may die before their appointed time as a result of sin. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty nine to 30 He who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if it does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak, sick, and a number sleep. Now, while James refers to physical death, Jesus speaks of the second death, eternal damnation in the lake of fire, for all who commit adultery, whether in deed or in thought. How many of you listening have condemned those who have committed the act of adultery, but secretly have harbored impure sexual desires or fantasies. In God's estimation, any believer whose lust is unrighteous is guilty of adultery. Let us confess and forsake all forms of adultery, whether inward or outward, mental or physical, lest death comes for us. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a gracious and merciful God. And Father, so often like the Pharisees, we simply interpret your commands according to the letter of the law. But Father, you want more than outward conformity. You want inward conformity. And so you want us to conform not only to the letter, but to the Spirit. And so Father, we come before you. And Father, I pray that if there's anyone who is actively committing the sin of adultery, outwardly, physically, indeed, that, Father, you would bring them to repentance. You might grieve their heart. That, Father, they might forsake that. 
More so, Father, I pray that, Lord, if there be anyone who struggles with lust, impure thoughts, inwardly, that, Father, they'd come to recognize it as well as adultery. And that, Father, they might too confess and forsake that. That, Lord, they might turn from that wickedness. And that, Lord, they might bring their thoughts captive to you and fill their mind with things that are true, lovely, honorable, and of good report. Through your spirit, give them strength. Give them ability to strive to be holy. We pray in your son's precious and holy name. Amen.